Hey, thanks for tuning into our podcast today. My name is Derek Puckett. I'm the lead pastor at Renewal Church of Chicago. If you want to know more information about us, you can head to our website at RenewalChicago.com. I pray today that this message is a blessing and an encouragement to your soul. Well, we are jumping back into the Sermon on the Mount. We took a pause, a break last week from the Sermon on the Mount. We've been in this sermon for, gosh, how long has it been? A few months now, right? We've just been going paragraph by paragraph, verse by verse. But before we get started with that, let me just, let me just pray over us. Does that sound good? Lord Jesus, would you lead us today? We need, we ask that you would open our eyes to see and open our ears to hear, that we would perceive and understand your truth, your reality. Please lead us this morning. Let your scripture come alive. Let it jump off the page into our minds and into our hearts, that you might be worshiped, that we might find life that truly is life. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Before we, or as we begin, I guess, uh, I'd like to just say this. Kanye. What? What's going on with that guy, right? <laughs> Kanye. I, I, I have to admit, I don't know, I'm not like a huge fan. I'm not a music critic. I'm old enough to where I like usually put on a jazz record. I'm not listening to Kanye. I don't know his old music. I pushed play on his new album and got 20 seconds in before I was interrupted by a kid, which is totally fine, but it means I haven't listened to the new album, so I'm not here to critique. I am here to say that with all the noise around Kanye going on right now, I think one thing is true, and it's something that was said by our friend, Pastor Brian Loritz. He was here a few weeks ago. He recently wrote this about the whole Kanye phenomenon. He said this, I'm praying for wisdom and for discernment for Kanye West to be able to see the wolves who will be coming at him in sheep's clothing. Sadly, the door is open for many so-called pastors and preachers to use him for their own ambitions. Now, what, what Pastor Loritz says here is exactly that, that, that phrasing, wolves in sheep's clothing, it comes directly out of the passage that we're going to read here together today. He, he's, he's using it, borrowing it from the Bible, and it is not something that is exclusively for a celebrity. It is a warning that is for everyone that Jesus, he, he extends to everyone. He says, watch out. There are false teachers. There are false prophets. Have your eyes open. Pay attention, Jesus tells us. Because these people, they look like sheep. But on the inside, they are ravenous wolves. This is the passage, part of the passage that we're going to be looking at today. Let's read it together. Let's read it together. Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. We're going to start in verse 13 and go through verse 20. Matthew chapter 7. 13 through 20. Uh, You can turn your Bibles, turn your Bible apps. We're going to put it up on the screen here too. Matthew chapter 7, when you got it, say got it. it. All right, that sounds like everybody to me. Let's stand together as as I read. Stand if you're able. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. Jesus continues in his Sermon on the Mount and he says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide And the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. 
You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. You guys may be seated. We're approaching, maybe you noticed in your Bibles, we're approaching the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. We're not, going to get, we're not going to get all the way there today, but this is, this passage that we just started is the beginning of the end of the Sermon on the Mount. It's the beginning of the conclusion. Now, if you've, if you've made a, a summary, if you've made a con- concluding statements in a court of law, if you've watched a TED Talk and watched a conclusion, if you've prepared a, a business presentation and thought about your conclusion, you know how important a conclusion is, Right? This is where you wrap everything up and you make your strongest case and you leave people with what you want them to remember. Now, I say all of that because this is Jesus' concluding statement. It's the beginning of the end of the Sermon on the Mount, his most famous teaching, his most well-known teaching in the Bible. And so if this is the conclusion, if this is how he's choosing to begin his conclusion, we better pay attention. This is what he wants his audience to leave remembering, right? So we have here this beginning, we're reading the first two paragraphs uh, of this concluding statement, and it would be good to just give kind of a quick overview of where we've been in the Sermon on the Mount. The beginning of the Sermon on the Mount that we looked at a couple of months ago, Jesus opens up by painting a picture of that person who is deeply happy. Jesus uses the word blessed. And he just has statement after statement, blessed is the person who, blessed is the person who. He paints this picture, this is the person who is walking with God. This is the deeply contented person, right? And then Jesus moves into what, what the Sermon on the Mount is most well known for, this, a series of ethical and practical statements about how to live. He covers a wide range of topics that we've looked at together as a church, divorce and slander and worry and anger and all kinds of stuff. And, and Jesus does all of these, presents all of these Christian ethics, and then he gets to where we are today, the conclusion the, the beginning of the end. And he, he gives us four pairs. We're only looking at the first two pairs today. Right? Four pairs. First, there are two kinds of path. There are two kinds of path. And then next, there are two kinds of teacher or prophet. And then there are two kinds of disciple, a follower. And then finally, there are two kinds of builder. He's repetitive on purpose. He wants us to walk away understanding something. Do you see? So, in the Sermon on the Mount, here we are at the beginning of the end, and we're going to approach this exactly the way uh, I think it's written here. Jesus is, is posing to us two implicit questions in these two paragraphs that we read. First, which way? Jesus talks about the narrow and the broad or the wide way. First question is, which way? Right? And the second question is, whose wisdom? Which way and by whose wisdom? You know, he talks about paths, and he talks about true and false teachers. Which way and whose wisdom? Those are our thesis questions that are going to guide us today. First, which way? The Bible scholar and teacher, uh, John Stott, if you guys know me at all, you know I love John Stott. Uh, John Stott has said, the Sermon on the Mount is the most famous teaching from Jesus that people have, quote, never read. And this is what he means by that. He means that Most people, I'm I'm generalizing, Stott is generalizing, most people today have kind of a sanitized view of Jesus' teaching. You know, they remember something like the golden rule. 
They remember uh, messages of meekness and gentleness, and they kind of have little nuggets here and there from the Sermon on the Mount. But they don't really know or remember the sharp and pointed words of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Today, we've got sharp, pointed words. Jesus is specific, and he's even controversial, right? What are the very first words out of the gate? There is just one way to life. You can hardly say anything more controversial today. So the most famous words that Jesus, or I'm sorry, that people have never read from Jesus. Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. The, the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to what? Destruction. And those who enter by it are many. Now, I want us to just rest there for a moment. If we're taking Jesus seriously, that means in this room, there are many who are on the wide path. That should startle us. That should, that should feel scary a little bit. If we take Jesus seriously, you know, uh, in the last couple of years, especially 18 months ago or so, we had the, the kind of the peak of the Me Too movement it, which I hope, I hope it really actually awakens culture to a lot of problematic things that have gone on for way too long, right? And, and you had all of these people telling stories and, and, and people, I hope, being held to account, maybe for the first time and in new ways than, than they ever have been. But the movement has not also been without critique. Um, there's a regular columnist for The Atlantic, uh, The Atlantic ma Magazine, and, and he gives a small critique, but because he believes in the Me Too movement, he, he writes that we should exchange the phrase, your truth, for the truth, right? And, and in this column, in the Atlantic, he says, this is important, and, and he says, remember that story, that tragic story of Ressie Taylor. If you haven't heard it, Wikipedia today. Her, her brutal assault at the peak in, in the... In the in the tragic era of Jim Crow, Taylor's brutal assault, and then Rosa Parks, yes, that Rosa Parks, comes and takes up Taylor's case, right? So this columnist in The Atlantic uses this as an example to make the case for the truth. Now, now stay with me here. This is a quote from the columnist, columnist in The Atlantic. He says, Rosa Parks did not take up Taylor's case to vindicate, quote, her truth, but on behalf of the truth. The Jim Crow elites who failed to prosecute Taylor's attackers may or may not have been living out their truths. But they were utterly at odds with the truth. Do you see the difference? It's a strong case. Now listen, whether or not this columnist in the Atlantic knows it or not, he is making in a way the same case that Jesus is making. There is one way, Jesus says. There is one truth. Now listen, there are millions of people who are all kinds of sincere in their truths, but they're on the broad path. Do you see? If we consider something so tragic, so heartbreaking, heart-wrenching as Taylor's case in the Jim Crow South, then it becomes clear to us we don't need everybody adhering to and following their own little truths. We need one objective standard. We need the truth. And this is what Jesus is offering to us. Imagine. Don't you want it? You know, what we're experiencing today, what sociologists are calling the post-truth world. Right? 
Isn't it the inevitable outcome of generations of people saying, do what you want according to your own truth? Of course we are here today. And Jesus steps in and he speaks directly into our age. And he says, let me tell you about the way, the truth, and the life. You know, uh, Jesus' disciples, in his final hours, Jesus is pointing to his pending death. And one of his disciples stands up, and you can almost hear, like, to me, like a frustration in, in his voice. And the disciple's like, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus responds in one of the most famous things that he ever said. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And it is no accident that those three are combined. Do you see here in the passage that we just read, the narrow path, the way, Jesus is telling the truth to life. Do you see? We must, we need one objective standard for what is true and what is the way. And Jesus points it out and he says, there is that way. It is found in me. The character of these two ways uh, we can see uh, pretty plainly. And, and yet, and yet, at the same time, somebody, a Christian or somebody else claiming that there is one right way, is just so abrasive in our culture. It's, it's so abrasive. When we uh, imagine... Imagine, if you will, you come to, you're downstate, you're downstate Illinois. You come to I-55, and you want to head back home. You want to get back to Chicago, and you come to I-55. One way is going north. One way is going south, right? You know where I'm going with this. It doesn't matter how earnest you are in your belief that both ways lead to the same destination. Only one goes home. Do you see what I'm saying? This is what Jesus is getting at. You cannot judge the way by someone's sincerity in their belief. You must judge the way by the destination. This is what Jesus is saying. You're going to get on I-55 South and you're going to go down, down, down and descend into St. Louis. Yeah, that was for Tony. (laughs) Or you're going to get on I-55 North and you're going to go home. Jesus is saying, he he is flying in the face of the the, the wisdom of this age that says there are infinite and varied number of ways and they all go to the same place. He says, no, my friends, there are but two ways and they lead to opposite destinations. One is home, one is life, and one is destruction. And he offers, because he loves his people, he offers this warning. They're both ways, they're both traveled, but they are different. One is constrained, one is narrow. One is easy and crowded. One is sparsely populated. And then there's something else, there's this other distinction between the two, it's a bit easier to miss. Into verse 13, talking about the wide way, those who enter by it are many. And then the end of verse 14, talking about the narrow way. Those who find it are few. Two different verbs, enter and find. One is passive and one is active. Somebody who finds something is looking for something. 
Jesus, it's no accident that earlier he said, ask, seek, knock, pursue. (laughs) Those on the narrow path are not there by accident. You you could put this another way. There is no pathless person. Everybody is on some path. Everybody is on some path, and you are only on the narrow path on purpose. You don't accidentally find yourself there. You, You are intentional. There is the default And there is the intentional. And that's what's happening here. This is what Jesus is saying. Do you wonder which path you're on? Is this the first time? I don't mean to sound too harsh, but these are Jesus' words. Is this the first time you've considered the path you're on? If that's true, then I know what path you're on. We need this warning from Jesus. I need this warning from Jesus. He's waking me up. He's saying, seek and find the narrow path, the one that leads to life. These words sound harsh, but aren't they generous? Doesn't somebody who really loves, aren't they actually concerned with the direction the person they love is going? What, a, what an absurd view of love. Taking something, uh, the, the love of God, and, and making it out to mean he doesn't care what you do. That's insane. No, 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 God loves you so much. He cares precisely what you do and where you walk. He wants you on the right path. The narrow and easy, uh, the narrow way versus the easy way. Uh, Some of you are runners. I've talked to you. You're crazy. You're marathoners. Crazier still. Some of you are hikers. I do occasionally. I do hiking in the mountains with some friends. Uh, You know the feeling of whenever you're running and you're going on a steep incline, whenever you're hiking, you're walking, you're on an incline, man, it's just brutal, right? You know the feeling of going on a steep decline and your joints are like crushed with every step, right? And then there's this other kind of path, whether you're running or whether you're hiking, and it's just this, this very subtle gradation down. It's almost like the path itself is doing most of the work for you. You're just kicking one leg out in front of the other, right? This is the wide and easy path. I was on a, uh, a few years ago in one of my very favorite places in the world, in the, in the Rockies uh, with a friend, and we hiked on this, this peak that I've been to a, a million times. It's a short hike. It's a day hike. We went up there called Sunrise Peak, and we just just were taken with the, the beauty and awe of everything around us. And then we turned around to go back, and we're just so enraptured uh, with the natural beauty around us and the rich conversation that we're having as we're going down the trail. And about an hour in, we look at each other and we're like, we should be seeing camp about now. Now, this is what happened. Subconsciously, without meaning to, we had taken the easy, subtle descent. And we take the wrong path. And if we had not noticed, when we noticed, the consequences would have been dire. We would have been out in the middle of the wilderness on what we thought was a day hike, but we would have had no supplies. We would have been subject to hypothermia and everything else. Do you see what I mean? The the wide way, this is what Jesus is saying, the wide way is easy, it is subtle, and it is deadly. It will kill you. The narrow way is constrained. It is found It's hard, Jesus says, but it leads to life. It does not destroy you. Which way? Which way are you on? It leads us right into Jesus' next paragraph. Whose 
wisdom are you listening to? Whose wisdom? Uh, you know, the, it's, it's good to remember that in the Bible, Jesus just said these words. He just preached this sermon. And the subtitles that are likely, are there in most of our Bibles, those subtitles that are there were put there by editors later to help us reference things. That's great. But just when you're reading through this, these two paragraphs went right together. You have the narrow and wide ways, and you lead right into the false teaching. They're, they're part of the same teaching. <laughs> Jesus is saying, you want to be on the narrow way, pay attention to who you're listening to. Verse 15, Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Here is where Pastor Loritz got that prayer that he prayed. He prayed for Kanye and we need to be thinking about and praying for one another, for ourselves. Beware of the false prophets. Now before we go further, it'd be good just a quick definition of prophet. It's not a word most of us typically use. Prophet in the Bible, but put really simply, is someone who has a message for the people, a message from God for the people. Message from God for the people. That is a prophet, right? A false prophet, therefore, is someone who claims to have a message from God, but it didn't come from him, right? So Jesus is talking about something very specific here. You and I, we have an ocean of opinions at every moment, at our fingertips, in our pockets, right? We have an ocean of opinions, but Jesus isn't just talking about everyone's opinion. He's very specific here. This is a false prophet. This is someone inside the Christian community. It's scary. This is someone inside the Christian community. This is, this is a leader or a teacher who's, who's in, who, who looks like, did you catch the language, who looks like one of us. It's striking. You know, when I was a kid in the 80s and 90s, yes, I'm that old. In the 80s and 90s, uh, my parents, uh, parents uh, had this stranger danger thing that you, they told kids. Uh, maybe parents still use that today, stranger danger. And the picture of a stranger was a guy in a hoodie at the corner of the playground with a windowless van with puppies and candy, right? This guy was easy to spot, stranger danger. I, I just heard a guy um, uh, who's the CEO of a, an organization called protect young eyes. They do educational pieces. They also help to lobby legislators to try to create laws that are better for, young, for children online, specifically. And this CEO said, we need to move from the language of stranger danger to the language when we teach children, the language of tricky people. In other words, online, you don't know who anybody is. You don't know if he's wearing a hoodie and has a windowless van. Everybody presents themselves as somebody different, right? We need to talk about tricky people. That's the same idea that Jesus is getting at here. He's saying, they look like sheep. These wolves, they look like sheep. They use the right words. They quote scripture. It's good to remember that even Satan himself quoted scripture when he wanted to deceive. They're wolves. And, and, and Jesus adds an adjective. They're ravenous wolves. They, they have an appetite. They will consume you. You will be devoured, listening and adhering to this wisdom. Now, I, I uh, confess that, that this part of the sermon for me was so hard to write. I just, I just kept saying, well, how do we discern? How do we discern this person <laughs> How do we discern these false teachers? Because Jesus is so repetitive, isn't he? 
He starts with a metaphor of, of wolf and sheep and immediately goes to a second metaphor of tree and fruit. And then for the next three verses, he says the same thing over and over again. You will discern them by their fruit. You will know them by their fruit. You will know them by their fruit. He is saying, open your eyes and pay attention. Pay attention. Pay attention. And so I want to offer us today just a, a couple of ways to discern. A couple of ways to discern the false prophet, the false teacher. It's not exhaustive. We don't have that much time. But first, you need to know what good teaching sounds like. If you don't have a point of comparison, it's going to be hard to know the false teacher, right? So let me give you two characteristics of good Christian teaching. One, it shows the Bible to be credible. Now, you're not going to prove, even the best teacher in the world is not going to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Bible is whatever, but at least, at the very least, good Christian teaching shows it to be credible. Like, just think about it. What if it's true? What if the Bible's claim that it is the word of God passed down for generations for us to read and apply, what if that's true? It shows the Bible to be credible. It, it connects it to its historicity. It shows it to be credible in, in how it is translated. Do you see? It just shows the Bible to be credible. In the second and more important way, that you can discern what is good teaching, what is good Christian teaching, is this. It points relentlessly to Jesus. Relentlessly. Over and over and over again. And part of that is it says something offensive. It's saying to the culture, it's saying to you, it's saying to me, you can't do it on your own. You need Jesus. You need someone above. You need, you remember we talked about this objective standard outside of ourselves. We need Jesus. So good Christian teaching shows the Bible to be credible. And it shows, it, it relies on it as an authoritative source. And it points relentlessly to Jesus and his cross. Over and over and over again, you cannot do it. Let me tell you about the one who can. That's good Christian teaching. False teaching in contrast. It's, it's a lot of things. It's a lot of things in different places, in different ages. But it's often motivated by the same kind of things. The false prophet, the false teacher, is motivated by accumulating more for themselves. It is they are motivated by um, consolidating power for themselves. By accumulating influence and, in, in, frankly, can I, just being liked. The, the false teacher wants to be liked the false teacher looks at the masses, and remember, my friends, where are the masses? Are they on the broad or narrow path? There's more on the broad path. How can I be liked by those people? How can I consolidate power in the masses? And he tells the masses what they want to hear. It's amazing. This, this idea of false prophecy or false teaching is just throughout the Bible, especially in the Old Testament prophets, and especially of them in Jeremiah. Jeremiah just rails against these guys. He's like, they go out into the streets and they, they proclaim, peace, peace. And Jeremiah says, when there is no peace. They're, they're saying to people, you're fine, you're okay, you're going to be fine. They take, as we mentioned earlier, something so radical and beautiful as God's unending love. And they tweak it just a little bit to say, that must mean you can do whatever you want. What a perverse view of love. They take Christian ideas and they tweak them just a bit, just a little, to where they're not Christian anymore at all. 
You know, in, in a way, this is really incredible. Think about this for a moment. The very first temptation, Genesis 3, Satan uses the same tactics. He goes to Eve and he asks a question and then he tells a lie. Here's the question. Did God really say? Go to Genesis 3. That's what it says. Did God really say? Now, you can apply this to all kinds of things today. Did God really say? Is it, is it really true that Christians believe that there's only one way to heaven? That can't be right. Question and lie. That can't be right. Did God really say that, that his created tent, intent for human sexuality is so narrow as to be monogamy in a covenant of marriage? That can't be right. Did God really say that everyone is to be judged? He can't be. He can't judge everyone. We could go on and on and on. This is false teaching. It, it's taking a Christian doctrine, perverting it just a little, feeding it back, and it's no longer Christian. And there are people who are only too happy to receive that teaching. There's this sick, symbiotic relationship <laughs> between the false teacher and his listeners. You know, in, in biology, symbiosis is whenever there's two organisms that work together to thrive. So for the false teacher and his listeners, there are two organisms that are working together to die. Imagine, you know, Jeremiah talked about this, or I'm sorry, Paul talked about this. He said there are false teachers and they just speak to tickle the ears of their listeners. We all have biases in our heart, me too. Things that I would love to hear. And the false teacher is so happy to step in there and tell me those things. And, and to lead me, where? On the big, wide, easy, subtle gradation of a path to destruction. Jesus is, in, in part, in part, he wants his audience, he wants you and I, he wants us to feel some of the weight, some of the, some of the gravity to what he's saying here. I hope we feel it today. But he doesn't want it to leave us there. He's pointing to himself as the one true way. The, the true teacher is, is pointing relentlessly to Jesus. He is showing she is showing uh, the Bible to be credible. And the false teacher is taking some Christian doctrine and just, just twisting it a little until it's no longer Christian at all. Jesus says, pay attention. You will know them by their fruit. One final note here. I could go on, but one final note. When you think about somebody's fruit, when there is a true teacher, there are people around him or her who are flourishing. There are people in their wake who said, I was blind, but now I see. They talk crazy talk. They're kinda, they, they, they use words that sound religious. They're like, I was lost, but now I'm found. You know, There are those people in the, in the circumference of the true teacher. And in the false teacher's uh, wake, there's destruction. There are destroyed people. There are people who are, are desperate and despairing. And, and sometimes, frankly, Jesus' is teaching here for us, discerning good from bad teachers, is just, it takes time. It takes time. There can be false teachers that live in notoriety for years before the world at large finds out. But I promise you, the people who are close to them knew a long time ago. It takes time, but it is deadly serious. Let me uh, conclude with this. In the 1930s, 
early 1930s, there's a young man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer who traveled to New York. Do you know, anybody know any of Bonhoeffer's story, some of us? Incredible story. You know, he's living in Germany, coming of age at a time when Germany is becoming more and more and more, like, dangerously nationalistic and racist. And Bonhoeffer, at this time, he's from an intellectual family. He has this, this um, desire to go into ministry. It's kind of strange, though, because Bonhoeffer himself would say when he first wanted to go into ministry, it was more of an intellectual pursuit. It wasn't because of a conversion. And, and part of this pursuit is he went to New York City. He wanted to enroll in Union Theological Seminary. He had heard about these great teachers. There was this celebrated pastor named Harry Fosdick who preached at Riverside in New York City, this, this giant church. And he went to New York City, and just a few weeks in, he was so discouraged. He's like, this is where I wanted to be. These are the people I wanted to learn from. And he wrote back to friends and family, and this is a quote from one of his letters. He said this, in New York City, they preach about virtually everything. Let me just pause there. That's true today. I was just in New York City last week. They preach about everything. You can find somebody soapboxing about any subject you want. It's true in Chicago also. It's true in San Francisco. It's true around the world. Anyway, he continues. In New York City, they preach about virtually everything. Only one thing is not addressed. Or it is addressed so rarely that I have yet been unable to hear it, namely, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The cross, sin and forgiveness, death and life. You got this guy starving for theological food who goes halfway around the world to find it, and he finds people preaching about everything. He goes to this celebrated pastor who's a false prophet who's tickling everybody's ears and never mentioning the gospel of Jesus Christ. I love this phrase, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the cross, sin and forgiveness, death and life. Bonhoeffer had a friend from seminary also there in New York, a guy named uh, Frank Fisher, African-American. He said, I, I just, I would love to have been there. Here you've got this German immigrant and you got this African-American dude and he's like, come to my church in Harlem, Right? This, this is just the way God works. He's like, I'm going to mix things up. And Bonhoeffer goes with Frank to Harlem, and he hears the incredibly powerful preaching of a guy named Clayton uh, Powell. Adam Clayton Powell. And this is what one of the biographers, uh, one of Bonhoeffer's biographers said. Uh, this is a bit of a long quote, but it's worth reading. He says this, There, in the socially downtrodden African-American community, Bonhoeffer would finally hear the gospel preached and see its power manifested. The preacher at Abyssinian Baptist Church was a powerful figure named Dr. Adam Clayton Powell Sr. Starving from spiritual skim milk, Bonhoeffer found a theological feast that spared nothing. Powell combined the fire of a revivalist preacher with great intellect and social vision. He was active in combating racism and minced no words about the saving power of Jesus Christ. For the first time, Bonhoeffer saw the gospel preached and lived out in obedience to God's commands. He was entirely captivated. And for the rest of his time in New York City, he was there every Sunday to worship. Here you got this young seminarian from Germany who's really just an intellectual, doesn't even know if he believes like on a faith level about Christianity. And God uses a church in Harlem to preach the gospel to him. 
Did you know that Bonhoeffer uh, later, just a few weeks after starting attending there, he started teaching the Sunday school boys class in Harlem? I want to be in that room. Some guy with a thick German accent in the 1930s leading up to World War II teaching Sunday school to kids in Harlem. That is awesome. But this is the kind of power that God has to get people on the narrow path. It's just pay attention, Jesus says. Seek for the narrow, the narrow good way, the way that leads to life. Which way? Whose wisdom? Which way? Whose wisdom? I hope these questions echo in your mind and heart. I hope the four W's are helpful to you to remember them. When you're in a moment of decision, when you're in a moment of crisis, when you're in a moment asking a question, when you're just in an everyday moment going to work, ask yourself, which way am I on? By whose wisdom am I living? Let them be diagnostic questions for you as you seek and find the narrow way. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we need you. I say it plainly. Over and over, we need you. We cannot do this on our own. This life, this world, it is too hard. It is too complex. It is filled with too many conflicting messages. We need you. Would this word from your Sermon on the Mount, would it, would, would it be rooted in our hearts? Let us ask all, all the time in prayer with you, which way am I on, O oh God? Whose wisdom am I listening to? And please put people in our worlds that are on the narrow path with us. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Thanks again for tuning into our podcast today. I pray that it was a blessing and an encouragement to your soul. I look to see you at one of our services at 9.30 or 11 a.m. on Sunday morning. Take care. God bless you.